read together our scripture reading. Okay, from John 16, let's read together. Okay, you want to stand? Let's stand. We'll read together. That's great. Thank you. All right. In a little while, you all see me no longer. And again, in a little while, you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, and he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, you will see me? Truly, I say to you, you will leap and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow because she hour has come. When she has delivered the baby, she no remembers the anguish. Joy, a human being has been born into the world. So you also you will sorrow now, but you will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. No one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask something from me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, you may be seated and rest. Pastor Hans to come up and lead us. As we read that, I think that uh, for many of us, we would be seeing those words that we were reading and seeing that there is to be fullness of joy that comes out of sorrow and lament. And perhaps in no time in my lifetime have we seen in this country the kind of need for that assurance, the need for that kind of comfort. And so we have been looking week after week at this idea of abiding in Christ. And so uh, perhaps we see all the more clearly through these troubled times the need that we have in order to abide. And so this is our last week in looking at, in particular, this idea of abiding. And I want to remind you of what we have seen thus far. And so the foundation of everything that Jesus has said in chapters 15 and 16 is connected with this idea of abiding in Christ. And as we abide in Christ, we are being transformed into his image. And so our abiding leads to the transformation into the image of Christ. And as we are conformed to Christ, this brings us to be a community. We are built together and we see different metaphors in the Bible for this. Some of the idea of being built as a body. We're all members of one body or as a structure with Jesus as a cornerstone. But as we're conformed into the image of Christ, we are built into a community, and this community testifies to the goodness of God and his holiness. And the result of this is that in our neighborhood, we stick out like a sore thumb. And this we saw in the passage where Jesus says that 
we will have enmity, hostility from the world. And the consequence of these things we will look at this morning is that there are two consequences, and these two consequences are sorrow and joy. Now, there's many ways we might look at life. There's different dimensions of life, success, failure. Uh, but in particular, Jesus sets these two ideas, these two this particular contrast of sorrow and joy before his disciples. And so, even as we were reading it this morning, the passage, and I was thinking about how applicable, how much need there is for this kind of joy. If we could have this fullness of joy in this time, during these troubles, this would be something that would be enormously distinctive about our community. And so let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we come to this final passage in John chapter 16. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your great and precious promises, which are sure because they are secured for us by the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And even this morning, as we were praying for many of the challenges that our congregation faces, and we know that there are many more challenges that so many of us are facing in terms of the economic crisis that this pandemic has brought upon us and the struggles that so many are enduring, the many health and fears for health that we are encountering in this present time. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand what it does mean to abide in you and what it means that we can have joy that no one and nothing can take from us. And so, Lord, as we come to this passage, may your spirit work among your people and bring not only an understanding, but a conviction that transforms who we are as a people and as a church. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so as we come to Jesus' concluding remarks on this idea of abiding, we begin with a statement that confuses both Jesus' disciples and also me. <laughs> and so I want to clarify one thing I said in a previous week, and this was during our training sessions where I gave the example of, as we're looking at Scripture, how some things are not very easy to see. And I gave the example of one, there was one week I came before the church that I was at at the time, and I was preaching from the book of Isaiah, and I had to come to the congregation and say, I really don't know what this passage means. Um, and the thing that I want to clarify about that is not that I didn't understand that week what was going on, but that might give the impression that on other weeks, I do know what is going on. And uh, that's not completely true because in every passage that we look at, if I'm going deeply enough, I'm always coming to something that is hard to understand because the reality is, is that the Bible is far deeper than I am. And if I'm not struggling to understand, if I come to a passage, I just think, oh, I, I understand this, then I'm probably not looking into it deeply enough. And that should be true for every one of us. As we come to the word of the Lord, as we delve into its steps, we should find that it goes beyond us. We should find that it goes beyond easy comprehension. 
and that there's often a richer and deeper message. And so, so often it is that it is actually the older Christians, the more mature Christians, that are hard-pressed to feel they understand the Word of God. Because as we continue in our Christian faith, we inevitably find that God will challenge us in ways that we are not prepared for because he's always seeking to help us to grow into the fullness of the image of Christ. And Christ is far deeper than any of us. And so what was the confusing statement in this passage? We start right off with it from the very beginning. Jesus says, a little while, and you will see me no longer, and again, a little while, and you will see me. So what does that mean? The disciples don't know, and Jesus knows that they don't know, and John records this confusion among the disciples in the verses that we read, where the disciples are saying, what is this that he's saying to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. And so they're discussing this among themselves, and Jesus knows that they're confused. And so, of course, Jesus, being the compassionate and gracious master that he is, explains and clarifies the statement. And he explains and clarifies the statement in a way that highlights its importance. Because if they can get a grasp and understand what it means by a little while and because I am going to the Father, he tells them that they will have fullness of joy and joy that cannot be taken away from them. And so if you listen to Jesus' explanation, we see that it is all the more important that we understand. And so he says to them, starting in verse 20, uh, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And so he sort of clarifies it. But if you're asking the question, what does it mean a little while? In other words, like, okay, how long is this going to be? And when is it going to end? Jesus' statement doesn't do anything for you. Because you have no further information on when this is going to occur. And so to give you a taste of the confusion, I'll tell you kind of what happened a little bit this week as I was going through this passage, which was I was confused, so I did what uh, uh, many of us would do in a situation like this, which is I went to get a little help from my friends. And I had one friend in particular I could go to, and that was Pastor Adam. And so I went to him and said, okay, Pastor Adam, what does this mean? a little while, and you will see me no longer, and again, a little while, and you'll see me. When is this? And just to make things extra fun, I told him whatever answer he gave me, I was going to tell him he was wrong. <laughs> and so, like, that's the, the ideal coworker, right? You want people working with you in the office like that. Uh, whatever answer you give them, they're going to just tell you you're wrong. Well, let me give you a few of the possibilities of what perhaps Jesus meant by a little while and you'll see me and again a little while and you I mean you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me perhaps he means the crucifixion and the resurrection right because Jesus is moving towards the cross and he's going to be taken from the disciples 
he'll be crucified and he will be buried. But as we know, three days later, he will resurrect and the disciples will see him again. So perhaps Jesus is referring to the crucifixion and the resurrection. Perhaps he is referring to the ascension when he will depart and go to the Father. And there will be a way in which he will be among them again at Pentecost when he sends the Holy Spirit. Or perhaps he means the ascension and then he will come again, the parousia, the second coming. And so at that time, again, the disciples will see him. Those are three of more than the three possibilities that I saw as I was looking at what various people have said about this passage. But let's suppose you said the first. Jesus is referring to the crucifixion and the resurrection. That would mean that the disciples and we at that time would come to a place where their hearts would rejoice and no one would take their joy or ours. Is that what we are experiencing now in this world? Indestructible joy. And that seems to have its difficulties because we as Christians, and we know the early church, suffered great persecution. And our joy is hardly, at least when I look at my life, my joy is not something that is indestructible. Suppose then, instead, we said that it was the ascension and the second coming. Well, that has a problem in that, how would this be a help to Jesus' disciples? Because as far as we know, he still hasn't come back yet. And they're all dead. And so if this was meant to be an encouragement to them, they never got to that time. And also, aren't we already asking for things in Jesus' name? Elder Gordon prayed earlier, I just prayed, and when we concluded our prayers, we said, in Jesus' name. We're asking things in Jesus' name. And so, haven't we already come to that time? And so, hasn't the day that Jesus spoke of already come? And then, think about this. If Jesus was trying to help us understand when this time was to be, couldn't he have been a little more clear about things? I mean, you could have said three days, right? That would make it really clear. But he doesn't tell us. And even if it wasn't clear at the time, remember also that what we have here are John's recording of Jesus's words that he passes along to us. And so what is John doing? Couldn't John have clarified it for us a little bit? And, and we do see in the gospel, right? John clarifies things from time to time. When, when uh, sometimes the disciples are confused about something, he explains it. He gives a little parenthetical note, and he says, well, this is what Jesus meant, but the disciples didn't know it at the time. Or was John simply passing along the confusion, and he still doesn't understand? Why does John write it this way and not clear things, clarify things for us a bit? And I would say what we have here is a statement that is at least a little ambiguous. Actually, it's more than a little ambiguous, right? Because it's so ambiguous that if you go out and look at a bunch of commentaries like I did, what you'll find is half a dozen different positions and people who have landed on different spots in each one of them. 
And so what exactly is it? And why is it that Jesus and John would choose to write in such an ambiguous way? And we know this is intentional because John records for us that the disciples were confused. And Jesus knows they're confused, and he tries to clarify it for them. But he clarifies it in such a way that it's led to more confusion. So, why this kind of ambiguity? And for those of you who have been in our Matthew training sessions, you know that ambiguity is nothing new, because we're actually going, we've been going through a passage, and I commend all of you for, because what Matthew does to us is, in a sense, unkind, if we're trying to learn how to interpret the Bible. Because right away, by the time you get to the end of chapter one, you hit one of the most difficult concepts in interpretation, and we've been struggling through that. Um, and here again, we see ambiguity, and, and John knows this is ambiguous. He knows it's confusing because the disciples were confused, and he records this for us. So why does the Bible do this sort of thing? Well, this morning, uh, when I arrived at church, um, I saw Liddy and Mike Granati heading out, and he was proudly wearing his Pittsburgh Steelers jacket. Well, uh, I was a little surprised that uh, Mike didn't ask me uh, what the outcome of the game was going to be, because I have quite a bit of knowledge of football. I even know that uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers are playing the Denver Broncos today. And so for those of you who know me and know like of my extensive football knowledge, I, 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 I think, you know, an appropriate thing would be for you to ask me and, and for predictions about the game, because most likely I'll be right all the time. But I might answer you in an ambiguous way. Now, why would that be? Let me give you a few possibilities for why I might give you an ambiguous answer if you ask me what the score of the Broncos Steelers game is going to be. I might not know. So one reason I might answer ambiguously is because I don't know what the score of the game will be. And I might not know, uh, not because I don't know a lot about football, but because Ben Roethlisberger, knowing the state of the Denver Broncos, might go, this game is going to be so easy. To make it more interesting, I'll play with my left hand. I'll only throw with my left hand. And so if he did that, uh, then perhaps the Broncos might intercept two wobbly balls because he's throwing with his left hand and return them for touchdowns. And so the Steelers might only win something like 48 to 14. But not knowing how Big Ben's going to choose to play this game, then, you know, I, I might not know what the end of the score would be. My answer would be less certain. Or I might choose to answer ambiguously because although I had a knowledge of the future and I knew exactly what was going to happen, it might be that you would have a hard time understanding the answer. For example, I might say that the Steelers are only going to win the game 23 to 21. But if I said that, none of you would believe me because you know how incredibly powerful the Steelers team is and, and just how abysmally uh, the, uh, the Denver Broncos would perform against a defense of the status of the Pittsburgh Steelers. But it might be because I knew that the Martians 
had heard of the legendary Pittsburgh Steelers, and they were going to come down and replace the normal Denver Broncos with super-powered Denver Broncos just to give the Steelers a test. And so in order to answer your question, I might start talking about, for example, movies where aliens replaced human beings. And then you would say, well, why in the world is this guy talking about aliens? Well, the reason I would, I, would, I would be talking about aliens and you wouldn't understand is because I'm preparing you for the eventual answer that Martians have replaced the Pittsburgh Steelers in order to give them a true test. A third possibility of why I might be ambiguous. I might know that you were planning to stay here through the prayer meeting and then after the prayer meeting, this church is going to have this wonderful training series on the book of Matthew and how to interpret the Bible. But I want to watch the game from the beginning because the game is starting at one o'clock. And so I might, in order to get you to come and watch the game with me right from the beginning, I might tell you that the Pittsburgh Steelers were going to have to attempt a 63-yard field goal to take the lead. I wouldn't tell you that this would be in the first three minutes of the game um, before the Steelers roll to their usual route. But the motivation for my answer would be in order to keep you from attending something that would be really beneficial to you uh, instead of going to something where the outcome is already foreordained because of the superiority of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And it is this third ambiguous notion that I believe is at least part of why Jesus answers in this way. Because right at the beginning of chapter 16, you can see that Jesus says this, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And so he has a motivation, because he knows the church is going to endure a severe time of persecution. And he wants to give his answer, couch his answer in a way that will help his disciples to endure. And what Jesus does is he sets the certainty of joy the joy of restored fellowship before his disciples, and he sets this against the suffering that the world might bring. And so as the disciples are supposed to focus upon the certainty of the joy that they will be forever again with their master, this is to help them overcome the world. And so how does the ambiguity help? Well, think of it this way. So we just moved into our home, and it's a really kind of not quite unpacked. It's a huge mess at this point. And one of the things that is making it more difficult for Irene and I to set up the whole home, I remember there was, I told the boys, please clean up the floor of your room. If you clean up the floor of your room, I can move up. Will gave us a desk. There's what Will's over there. We, so we took the desk. It's, it's finally up there because they finally picked up the floor. Now, how could I keep that floor neat and orderly? Well, I could tell the boys that if I check the floor of the room and it's nice and neat, that we're going to go out for a bike ride and get ice cream. And if the joy of that, the motivation of that was enough, then there would be this motivation to actually have the floor of their room clean. 
Now, suppose I tell them I'm going to come home at three o'clock and at three o'clock, I'm going to look at the floor. And if the floor is nice and neat, then we'll go out for ice cream. You know what's going to happen? Well, first of all, no one's going to care about the floor until about 2.55. And it's going to be a huge mess at that point. And what will happen is one of them will look at the floor at 2.55 say, guys, we got to clean this up. And they'll look at it and it will be in such an abysmal shape that they realize they can't get it cleaned up by 2.55. And then so they go straight to despair and then they just lay on the floor and go, oh man, it's all your fault. We wanted to go for a bike ride and have ice cream. And so if I tell them the time in our home, what's likely to happen is this. Not only will they not do it until the time they think I'm going to come to check, they're probably going to get themselves into such a mess that even when the time comes, they won't be able to fix it up. And if I think about my life before the Lord, if I knew, for example, that I was going to live until I was 54 years old, uh, two months and three days, how might I live my life? Well, one thing might be I would not be terribly motivated to do much about my walk with the Lord until maybe I was 53 years and one month and three days. <laughs> but by that time, I probably would have walked so far away from the Lord that my life would be in such a mess and I would have no desire to come back. But what Jesus does is he tells them the magnitude of the joy that awaits them. They have spent the last three years of their lives following this man, and they see that he has the words of life, and they're learning to be in fellowship with him. They're learning to love him. And yet there's a way in which that love still needs to be pursued. And so Jesus tells them there is the certain hope. If you pursue it, you will certainly achieve it. The world cannot take away your joy when you see me again. And so he sets before them a certain, a permanent, and an indestructible goal that is theirs if they will pursue it. But he doesn't tell them when it's going to happen. And we see the need of this because we see the state of the disciples' faith. Because in verse 25, he then says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Now, I want you to notice that there's a difference in tense. And the difference in tense is this. Jesus is saying the hour is coming when, so a future time, when looking back, we can see that you have loved me and you have believed that I've come from the Father. 
but that time when we can look back and see it is still in the future. And in terms of uh, the way this tense work, you see that it hasn't happened yet. It's not true yet, but at some point in the future, we can see that it, it will have happened. But what is it that the disciples see? Or the disciples say, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you come from, or you came from God. And uh, for some of you who have the NIV translation, there's, there's two ways. And you can see that in the ESV and the NIV where you can, uh, of how you can translate that. And you can see that they've come to very different uh, translations. Because the NIV says, now you believe. As in Jesus is saying, yes, you finally got it. The ESV, on the other hand, says, do you now believe? Question mark. And there's two very different senses there. And in terms of the context, I, uh, I would say not only the ESV, but almost every other translation of the Bible goes in this direction because the context makes it clear that disciples haven't got it. And so if you've got an NIV there, uh, and as you're looking at that, I would really kind of say it's probably more this idea of do you now believe? Because look at what Jesus says after that. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his home and will leave me alone. This is hardly the actions of those who finally have come to believe. It's rather the kind of result of when people haven't fully realized what the truth is and they don't have that confidence. Because we also do see something else. It is true that when Jesus is arrested, that the disciples will flee away from him. They will abandon him. And so in that sense, we can see that that hour hasn't yet come where this little while has happened, where they have come to this indestructible joy that should preserve them through any trial and any tribulation. But as we look ahead, isn't there a transformation that does happen to the disciples? And in fact, as we see the disciples from being disciples who are following Christ to when Christ leaves. And this band of 12 cowardly, we might say, men who are inconstant are replaced by men who are willing to go out and suffer and die in order to proclaim the gospel. Think of how this transformation has happened by Acts chapter 5. And so the apostles now have been preaching Christ. And the religious authorities have seen what they are doing. And so they call them in. And we see in verses 40 and following, it says they called in the apostles. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name and every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the christ is jesus you see something's changed the disciples for them, they had come to that place where their joy could survive being called in by the authorities, would withstand 
being beaten and the suffering that would not keep them from proclaiming the name of Christ. There had been a reorientation for these apostles who had seen their master crucified and had thought at the time of the crucifixion, it's all over. We thought he was the Messiah, but we were wrong. But when they saw the risen Christ and they knew the hope that they followed was sure, they knew that even death would not stop Jesus nor his followers. And so here is another reason for that ambiguity. We also need what the disciples had. And the kind of joy that had come into their lives and had become this indestructible joy that even as they were suffering and being killed and martyred for the faith, they would not cease from preaching that Jesus was the Christ. Well, we also need that. And it is because we also need to see Christ. And as we as a church and as individuals come to see Christ, then it is that our joy too can be indestructible. And so this seeing of Christ, why is it ambiguous? Because if Jesus had identified a specific time, well, then that time would have passed. But what I would say is that that offer is still open. You and I can abide in Christ. We too can see Christ in his word. We too can experience Christ through his Holy Spirit, which he has given to every one of his believers. And we are all in that process, as were the disciples, where we are learning to follow him, where we are learning to love him. And so one of the things that I think is most problematical about many of the worship songs we sing these days is we sing about how much we love Jesus. But for most of us, that's a process that is still ongoing. We're not at that point where Jesus says, I look back and I can say that you have loved me. You have that unshakable confidence that I came from the Father and I'm going back to him. And instead, we're still at that point where we have one foot in and we have one foot out. We're kind of in the church and we're kind of out of the church. We're hedging our bets. Well, career on one hand, church on the other. Time spent out entertaining myself on one hand and time in fellowship on the other. We're not all in. And our love for Christ is weak. Every time when I'm confronted with the choice of do I do something for myself or, or even like in my relationship with my wife and I could do something that would be kind to her and would honor Christ or I could, I could use a harsh word. There's too many times I choose a harsh word. Why is that? And the reason is Christ is not yet real enough to me. The transformation in my life hasn't gone far enough. I haven't abandoned myself as wholly to his cause as I need to. Jesus tells his disciples this joy, and he sets it in such a way to push them to pursue the joy that is set before them. Because think about what brings sorrow and joy. Sorrow and joy comes not just from events themselves, but how we think about them. So, for example, if I see Jimmy there, 
and uh, his wife is standing next to him, and he sees me run up and just push Diane super hard. Well, his reaction might be anger. Why is Hans, you know, shoving my wife? And then moments after I shove Diane out of the way, he sees a car flash by. Oh, he just saved my wife's life. How he understands that event is going to govern how he thinks about it. And think about what the, what the apostles had gone through. When they were brought in before the religious authorities and they were beaten, how did they, how did they regard that event? They rejoiced because the way they perceive that is we have been counted worthy to suffer for our master, for the, his gospel, to suffer for on, in, on behalf of our friends. How do we abide in Christ? How do we pursue and bring Christ in our life in a way that transforms us so that how we understand the events of our lives, how we understand the trials, the struggles, and so many people are going through so many trials and difficulties. And when we encounter these trials and difficulties, are we going to be beaten down by them? Are we going to say, there's no hope. All I see is suffering. Or do I see sometimes that God is working in my life and the trials and the difficulties that have come upon me come upon me in such a way because God has a purpose for them in my life. Uh, Piper says this, John Piper says this about our pursuit of God in the scriptures. We must die to the notion that we do not have to think hard or work hard to achieve spiritual goals. And we must die to the notion that our thinking and our working is decisive in achieving spiritual goals. What he balances in this statement is two ideas, which is that God and his word must become our pursuit. It must become our passion. We must pursue him in his word. We must strive to obey his commands. But it is instead God's work in us that guarantees the completion of this work. And so we abide in Christ by dwelling in his word, by knowing his word, by coming to him in prayer and laying everything, every concern before him and concluding those prayers, if it be for health, if it be for job, if it be for career, with an understanding that what God brings into our life will be for our good. And we see that as we dwell in the word of the Lord and we come to know who God is and we come to know who the Son is, that God himself testifies to us. He speaks to us in his word, which in turn brings us to speak about him in our lives. Because if Christ has become my passion, if he has become my delight, I used the uh, example of the Steelers earlier. Well, in Pittsburgh, you will not have any trouble uh, finding people who are willing to talk to you about the Steelers. And why is that? Because we love the Steelers here. Or I should say you love the Steelers. I haven't been here long enough. You can, you can keep working on this. But the Steelers are a passion here. And so it naturally comes out in the conversations. When Christ becomes our passion, it is he and his gospel that will come out 
in our lives, both in what we say and what we do. I want to conclude this morning with the example of William Tyndale, who many of you will know is one of the original translators of the Bible. And he was the one who brought the Bible into the vernacular, the common English language. And he translated the New Testament and a section of the Old Testament before he was arrested and put in prison for the crime of bringing the word of God to the people. And as he awaited his trial, uh, he was going, he was in prison and uh, he, had, he basically only had the things that he had on his person when he was arrested. And so he writes to his jailers uh, this particular letter that I think reveals where his goal, his desire, his passion was. I beg your lordship and that of the Lord Jesus that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine which he has a warmer cap. For I suffer greatly from cold in the head and am afflicted by a perpetual catarrh cough, which is much increased in this cell. A warmer coat also for this which I have is very thin, a piece of cloth too to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt if he will be good enough to send it. I have also with him leggings of thicker cloth to put on above. He has also warmer nightcaps. And I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and the Hebrew dictionary I may pass the time in that study. In return, may you obtain what you most desire, so only that it be for the salvation of your soul. But if any other decision has been taken concerning me to be carried out before winter, I will be patient, abiding the will of God to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit, I pray, may ever direct your heart. Amen. William Gonzalez. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the example of these saints that have gone before us, your apostles who were martyred to the man, the countless saints who sacrificed their lives, such as William Tyndale, who loved your word with such great passion that they were willing to give their lives in order to give your word to your people. And I pray, Lord, that that same passion would come upon this church, upon this congregation, that we too would desire to pursue you in your word, to abide in your word, that your commands would abide in us and your commands would not be burdensome, but they would be our joy, the fount and the source of indestructible joy that we will have in fellowship with you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience, and may you ever work among your people. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.
As we meditate on this song of response, it is a song that smells of heaven because it is so near death. Henry Light was dying as he was writing this song. It was his last request that the Lord would be ab abiding with him. So as we are approaching our own death, let us ask what we would ask the Lord as our last request. Um, and another interesting fact about this song uh, and why it smells of death is that the music is written by William Monk. And William Monk was reading this poem by Henry Light several years after he wrote this, this poem. And he had just lost his three-year-old daughter. So as we are singing this song with the tune of William Monk and with the words of Henry Light, we are very, we smell the fragrance of heaven because these two men were very near to Christ as they depend on him in their grief and their sorrow because they are approaching their joy. So let us rise and, and ask the Lord to abide with us, to abide with us as individual, abide with us as a church, abide with us at home for those who are at home.
Father, we know not the hour, but we ask, O Lord, that with our dying breath, we would ask you to abide with us, that we would remember your word, that we would ask that you would continue to speak to us. Oh, Father, do not forsake your sheep, for we are weak and we are sorrowful. We are tired and heavy laden, but you have promised to give us rest. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Now let us end the service with the doxology. Let's close our service this morning with these words from our Savior and pray that this would indeed be true of each one of us. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Let us go out in the confidence that what God has promised, he will bring to pass. This concludes our service. We're going to now continue. Uh, so if you are here in the sanctuary, please remain in your seats because we are going to have our church prayer meeting, and the PC congregation will be joining us. And if you are on our Zoom session, if you just remain logged into the Zoom session, you will shortly be joined by uh, a number of our brothers and sisters from the